I'd like to look again at verse 3 of Genesis 12. God tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We can see from Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, that Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And of course, as we continue to read the Bible, specifically as we get to the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, with the genealogy of Jesus, we can see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant that God makes to Abraham. For as a descendant of Abraham, Jesus was the one who who was sent to this earth by our Heavenly Father to to die on a cross for our sins, to conquer both sin and death with His resurrection on the third day, so that anyone who, who comes to Him in faith, that all nations, all people, all families might be blessed through Him. Yes, Jesus is that fulfillment of this covenant that God makes to Abraham. And we know that Jesus wants us to make disciples of all nations because as you go to the end of Matthew, you'll see in the Great Commission, the resurrected Jesus tells, tells all of His disciples, His followers, the, to go and make disciples of all nations. And of course, the Greek word for nations there is ethnos. We get the English word ethnic from ethnos. Jesus' desire is that everyone would come to faith to Him, everyone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that every knee would bow and confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord As Jesus says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as we know, Jesus commissions His followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And and I don't know about you, but I'm I'm really grateful that He did. Uh, A couple years ago, my wife paid for uh, one of those DNA tests from Ancestry.com that you get to spit in a cup and they send it off. They tell you What is your ethnic origin? Well, I didn't know what it was. I'm a bit of a mutt. This is what I am. 67% Scotch-Irish, which is good Presbyterian, right? 67% Scotch-Irish. 29% English, 3% German, 1% Swede. Now, if you look at a map, the United Kingdom is pretty far from the nation of Israel. So I'm really glad that Jesus commissioned His disciples to go make disciples of all nations, every tribe, every tongue, But if you continue reading the New Testament, you'll see that after Matthew, we'll eventually get to the book of Acts, and you can see that, well, initially, the first century church that was predominantly led first by Jewish Christians has a hard time welcoming Gentiles into their fellowship. In fact, you can see in Paul's letter to both the Galatians and the Colossians that this was a struggle for this first century church, for the Jewish Christians to to welcome Gentiles into their fellowship. Now, if Jesus has said that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, if Jesus has made it clear that we're called to make disciples of all nations, then why did the first century church, predominantly made up of Jews initially, struggle with bringing Gentiles into their community? Well, if you continue reading the Old Testament, you'll see that Deuteronomy 7, the people of Israel are actually instructed to remain separate from foreign nations. And this separatism This racism was hard to break. We read about this in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4. Moses tells the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land, he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, 
the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now with initial reading of Deuteronomy 7, it seems pretty harsh that God would command the people of Israel to completely destroy the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Why would God call the people of Israel to destroy these seven nations? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 4. That if they don't destroy these nations, they'll be tempted to intermarry with the people of these foreign nations. And according to verse 4, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. If you read the Old Testament in its entirety, you'll see that the greatest sin, the sin that upsets God the most is when his people, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, chase after foreign gods like Baal. And God knows that the fertility gods of these foreign nations will be quite the temptation with their, with their uh, temple prostitutes and different acts to, that the people of Israel will, will, will be very tempted to turn their hearts towards these other false gods. And God is a, a loving God, but he's also a jealous God, and he doesn't want to see his people break fellowship and covenant with him by chasing foreign gods. So he instructs them to, well, to destroy these nations entirely so that you won't be tempted to intermarry with them. Because if you intermarry with them, well, then your heart will certainly follow after their gods. Now, if you read all of the Old Testament, you'll see that ultimately the people of Israel, they don't destroy the Canaanites completely. They allow some to live. And, and, and what they end up doing is they do intermarry with these foreign uh, nations, with their foreign gods. And over time, the people of Israel begin to follow after these foreign gods like Baal and, and Asherah. And, and well, that's ultimately what led to the destruction of the nation of Israel. It was conquered by first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans because they were following after false gods. They were committing adultery from the one true God by following after these idols of these false gods. And so the people of Israel, fast forward to the first century, in first century Judaism, they know that the reason that they are under living under Roman rule is because their ancestors had followed after foreign gods because they intermarried with foreign nations. And so they're doing everything they can in the first century to remain separate, to remain distinct. They didn't want to intermarry with Gentiles, non-Jews, or have table fellowship with them because, well, most of the Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world were polytheistic. They had many gods and many goddesses that they would worship, and they wanted to make sure that they were distinct and holy. They were separate as God's holy people, worshiping the one true God. But ironically, Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up and he begins to preach about the kingdom of God and he begins to extend himself to a Samaritan woman at the well. He offers her living water and reveals that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And and what does he do? He he heals the the Roman centurion's servant or the Syrophoenician's daughter and he he begins to heal people from different ethnic backgrounds and different races And, and now he's commissioned his disciples, his followers, to go and make disciples of all nations. But these Jewish Christians are reticent 
to enter into table fellowship with Gentiles, non-Jews. It, it takes a while for racism to ultimately die. Now, I know that none of us would identify ourselves as racist. We've seen the damage that racism can do in our, our country. Sadly, our, our country does have a history of racism. Uh, African Americans, Asians, Hispanics have not always been treated equally. And, and we need to study our history so that we can learn from our history and make sure we don't repeat the sins of our history. But as I was studying racism in America, I came across a term that was, frankly, it was new to me, but I think it probably accurately describes many of us today. The term is implicit bias. Implicit bias is defined this way by Merriam-Webster's dictionary. A bias or prejudice that is present but not consciously held or recognized. I wouldn't say I'm a racist, but, but perhaps I have implicit bias that I'm not even really aware of. An example of this actually happened in the 1987 Eastern Conference Finals when the Celtics were playing the Pistons, uh, if you can remember that, many years ago. Larry Bird was going up against Dennis Rodman. And uh, Dennis Rodman was known as a great defender and a great rebounder, and Larry Bird just took Dennis Rodman to school. It was unbelievable. At the end of the series, after Larry Bird had scored many points on Dennis Rodman, they interviewed Dennis Rodman. They asked Dennis Rodman, you know, what was it like trying to cover Larry Bird? And, And Dennis Rodman defensively said, you know, you make a great deal about Larry Bird because he's white. If he was a black player, he'd be just another old basketball player. If you know anything about Larry Bird, he's a three-time MVP. He's won three NBA championships, and he was the finals MVP in two of the NBA finals that he played in. He is a Hall of Fame basketball player. He is by no means an old basketball player. Whether he's white or black, he is a great basketball player. But does this comment by Dennis Rodman make him racist? Well, if you know anything about Dennis Rodman, you know that actually he Well, he's been married to white women. He's dated many white women. His best friend in college was white. Dennis Rodman would not identify himself as racist, but certainly there was an implicit bias that was brought out in that comment, that he had this bias against Larry Bird because he was white. It was interesting, sticking with basketball, because that's my favorite sport, uh, there uh, there was a study done in 2007 of NBA referees, and they found that white Referees in the NBA, these are the best referees in the basketball. White referees call more fouls on black pay- players than black referees do. And black referees call more fouls on white players than white referees do. There's clearly an implicit bias. Now, I know, and I'm quite confident, that any foul an NBA referee calls is probably a foul most of the time. I mean, 95% of the time, those guys are right. But there's a lot of fouls, having played basketball, that go uncalled. There's a lot of pushing, a lot of shoving, a lot of elbowing that happens that the referees don't call. It's just part of the game. You learn to play through these calls. But, but it was noted that these white referees seem to pay a little more attention to the black players. And the black referees seem to pay a little more attention to the white players. And there seemed to be an implicit bias based on the number of calls that they make against people of different race. Implicit bias can show itself in different ways just about anywhere. So how can we make sure that we as followers of Christ are not succumb to implicit bias, that we don't have racism, whether it be explicit or implicit, because we know that Jesus loves everyone, that he's called us to make disciples of all nations. So how can we make sure that in our hearts there isn't an implicit bias? To find out how we can rid our hearts and minds of implicit bias, any form of racism, I would encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. 
Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, as we come to your text this morning, as Paul instructs the church in Colossae, we pray that we might hear your word as well, that you might help us see what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear, and that we might have a heart that would be open and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is trying to instruct this predominantly Gentile Christian congregation that has Jewish Christians in it that the Well, the things that seek to divide people in society should not divide people within the body of Christ because Christ is in all. Christ is everything. Our identity is found in in who we are in Jesus Christ, not our race or our religious background for those who are circumcised and uncircumcised, not our our national origin. No, our identity is ultimately found in in Jesus Christ and, and Him alone. Now, in order for us to fully appreciate the weight of what Paul is saying here, it helps us to to know that, well, the Greeks and the Romans viewed barbarians as those who were uneducated because their language seemed like they were babbling and they were unrefined and and uncultured. And among the barbarians, the worst were the Scythians. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, 
describes Scythians like this. They were little better than wild beasts. They viewed the Scythians a little better than wild beasts. And Paul, who had been called by Jesus himself to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, lets the church in Colossae know that they must welcome everyone, even the Scythians, who many view as a little better than wild beasts. How is it going to be possible for them to do that? Well, I think if we go back to Colossians 3, 1 to 2, we'll see what is the key to making sure that we welcome everyone. For Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We're called to focus our heart and mind on Christ, who is above. As we focus our heart and minds on Christ and, and His teachings, well then, ultimately, we will be transformed and begin to, to see others as Jesus sees them, as people that He was willing to die for, that He loved so much that He would willi willingly lay down His own life for them. As we're called to have our hearts and minds focused on Jesus Christ and, and Him alone, then we'll begin to see the world through the lens of Christ and see that Jesus loves everyone. I believe the key to removing racism, whether it be implicit or explicit, getting rid of implicit biases, is by listening, learning, and loving. Listening. Notice what Paul instructs the church to do uh, in verse 16 of our text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We need to listen to the words of Christ above any other words that we hear. Notice that Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He says, listen to Jesus. He doesn't say listen to Caesar or Pilate or Biden or Trump or Fox News, or CNN, or MSNBC, or QAnon, or Antifa, or BLM. He says, listen to Jesus first. For Jesus is the Word made flesh. He's fully God and fully man. As John writes in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God's calling us to be. And if we want to know what God would have us do, we need to listen to the words of Jesus. We need to dwell on His words memorize them, meditate on them so that they dwell in our hearts and they are the lens through which we see all reality. I was listening to a podcast recently and Rick Warren, who's a famous preacher, Saddleback Church in Orange County uh, in California who wrote the book Purpose Driven Life. I'm sure many of us have read that book, very famous book. He said that his biggest challenge in leading his congregation right now is that most of his congregation spends more time listening to political pundits and to, to the social media and news rather than listening to the words of Jesus. But if we'll get back to meditating on the words of Christ and focusing on what Jesus has to say, well, then we'll know exactly what it is God is calling us to do. For as we look at the words of Jesus, we see in Matthew 22, Jesus tells us the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Shema. And the second commandment is like it in Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that the way that we love our neighbor is by living out the golden rule that Jesus gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, to treat others the way that you would like to be treated. And when Jesus was asked in Luke 10, who is my neighbor? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I even know this parable. But in first century 
a good Samaritan was an oxymoron for most first century Jews because there weren't any good Samaritans. I mean, Samaritans were, were half-breeds. They, they were the Jews who had been formerly a part of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they had been conquered by the Assyrians, and they were known to intermarry, and they'd been worshiping in Samaria rather than Jerusalem, and so they were half-breeds. The Jews of Jerusalem did not view Samaritans as faithful followers of Yahweh. And when Jesus is asked, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. You remember the story. There's a man who's on his journey, and while he's on the road, he is robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And then who comes by but a priest, someone who was a, an expert in the Mosaic law, who should have known in Leviticus 19 that you're called to love your neighbors yourself, but what does he do? He walks on the other side of the road to avoid this man so that he won't become defiled. Then who comes next? A Levite. A Levite, a, a descendant of the tribe of Levi, who were the people that helped lead worship in first the tabernacle and later then in the temple. If anybody would have known what the Mosaic law said about loving your neighbor, this Levi should have known, but what does he do? He walks on the other side. And then here comes the hero of the story, a Samaritan, a half-breed. What does he do? He lives out Leviticus 19. He loves his neighbor as himself. He cares for him. He puts him on his own donkey, takes him to a hostel, a hotel, a place where he might stay. He pays for all of his needs so that he might be taken care of. And we are called to go and do likewise. We're called to do what the Samaritan did. As Jesus was one who, who loved everybody. He offered living water to a Samaritan woman at a well. He healed the Roman centurion's servant. He healed the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. He, he was the one who, who loved everyone, and he's commissioned us to do the same. Yes, I believe that we will get rid of implicit bias, racism, whether it be explicit or implicit, by listening first to Jesus and then listening to our neighbor. You know, this last summer in July, we had a great event, United as One, that uh, many churches in our community put together in the midst of all the racial riots that were happening in places like Minneapolis and Houston and all over the country and Portland. And I was so proud of the churches in Amarillo as we gathered together and said, hey, let's, let's meet. Let's, let's have a, an opportunity to pray for our city, to pray for our country. And so we did. And at this gathering, many of us were there on the Potter County Courthouse lawn praying. And Anthony Harris, the pastor of St. John's Baptist Church, offered this challenge to everyone in attendance. He said, I want you to find someone who doesn't look like you. And I want you to introduce yourself to them. And I want you to get to know their story. Well, as it was, I happened to be sitting around a bunch of Presbyterians, so I knew everybody. I didn't know anybody. And so I, I decided I'd, I'd take this chance later to call Anthony himself. And I said, hey, Anthony, I really appreciated that challenge. My wife and I would like to know if we could take you both to dinner. I want to hear your story, get to know you better. Well, as I sat and listened to Anthony's story about growing up in California and his wife as well, I felt led by the Spirit to ask him that since he's lived here in Amarillo, has he ever experienced racism? And sadly, he and his wife both had stories of how they have experienced racism here in Amarillo. It's very clear that as much as we may love Christ, as much as we as a community try to pray, Lord, there, there's much more work to be done. Yes, if we will listen to Christ, we will see that we're called to love everyone. And if we'll listen to our neighbor, we'll hear stories, particularly our neighbor who is of a different race, a different background, we'll learn stories of how they have been mistreated because of their race. And we will learn we will learn what they've been through, and we'll learn how we can love them better by walking alongside them, by putting on love. Notice what 
Paul writes in verses 12 to 14, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all things, put on love. Yes, if we will focus on listening to the words of Jesus, listening to our neighbor, we will learn what Jesus has to say, and we'll learn how, how our neighbor has perhaps experienced racism, and we'll know better how to love them, to let them know that we care for them. And, and, and I know how an implicit bias is formed. An implicit bias is formed because somewhere along the way, perhaps you've had a negative experience with someone from a, from a different race. I remember when I, uh, my first year at Lee High School in Midland, uh, I went to the gym to play after school basketball, and, and I was coming from a private school that was predominantly Caucasian, and I walked in the gym, and I was the only Caucasian in the gym, and the way that it works is, you know, they make teams, and as they're picking teams, I didn't get picked. I didn't even get picked last. I didn't get picked at all. It was kind of disappointing. And then I had to wait for the next game, and when they picked for the next game, I didn't get picked for that one either. And I began to develop an implicit bias, like, these guys don't think I'm any good just because I'm white, you know? Don't they know who Larry Bird is? You know, he's like the one guy who's good. I've learned to overcome that implicit bias, though. That's a small thing. The key to overcoming implicit bias is to forgive and to make new memories, to reach out to those who are different from you, to build relationships with those who don't look like you. The first time I met Anthony Harris, I was actually on the board of Panhandle 2020, and I'd been on the board for about a year, and it was my second year, my second term, and as I walked into a board meeting, you know, people were congregating, talking in different huddles, and there was Anthony Harris the only African-American man in the room in the corner. And I took a beeline to meet him, to greet him, to welcome him, to let him know that I'm so glad he's on our board because we need his perspective as we try to help our city together. If you're ever in the majority, be sure and reach out to the minority to let them know that you're glad they're here. For we were all created in the very image of God, and Jesus makes it very clear that God's love the world, that he came to save us all. And he's commissioned us to make disciples of all nations, every ethnic group, and thank God he has, because I wouldn't be a Christian if Jesus hadn't commissioned his disciples to do that. I'm not Jewish. I'm Scotch, Irish, English, Swedish, and German. I'm a mess. And at the foot of the cross, it's clear that the ground is really leveled. Notice what Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones. We are God's chosen ones. As Presbyterians, we're not afraid to talk about being chosen because we like this idea. We understand that God chooses us before we ever choose him, that God loves us before we ever love him. And if you continue reading Deuteronomy 7, you'll see that God goes on to tell the people of Israel that he's chosen them not because they were the greatest of nations. In fact, they were the least of nations. No, God loves them because he loves them, and the same is true of us. God has chosen us because he loves us. And there's nothing inherent in us that would make us lovable to him because we're sinners, born sinful, prone to sin, but God loves us anyway. And as we understand the doctrine of election which helps illuminate God's grace, we'll see that we're not better than anyone else, that we're all sinners, in need of God's grace. And thankfully, he offers his grace to everyone. And so should we. We need to listen. Listen to Jesus. Listen to our neighbors. Learn from Jesus. Learn from our neighbors so that we might love others well, just as we have been loved by Christ. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that guides us and directs us in all truth. We thank you, God, that
Paul challenged the church in Colossae, and he challenges us as well to not allow there to be divisions within the body of Christ, for Christ is all and in all. So God, I thank you for the fact that we are united by Christ, that we are brothers and sisters, regardless of our race, that we are all created in the very image of God, that you love us all. So Lord, help us to be attuned to your word. Help us to meditate and memorize your word so that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. It helps us to find everything we know to be true. And help us to listen to our neighbors who have maybe a different background or a different race than us, that we might learn of their experience and that we might love them well, just as you have loved us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.